had no hope then. I really felt hopeless. It took a long while before I regained some hope and a much longer while before I found what has become my calling. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, happiness expert, Dr. Tal Ben-Shachal. You may have heard of Tal Ben-Shachal from his best-selling books such as Happier and Being Happy. The man knows a thing or two about the subject. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Tal over the past few years. He's one of the most interesting people to speak with, not just about happiness, but leadership too, which he's actually authored a book on called The Joy of Leadership. Tal has seemed to live many lives. He was a national Israeli squash champion. He taught what was at the time Harvard's most attended class. And he's also entrepreneurial, creating multiple companies alongside his best-selling books. And what impresses me the most about Tal is his long-term commitment to the science of happiness. For Tal, this isn't just work. It's his calling. As a child, Tal had no dreams of going to Harvard. He didn't even dream of university. He was the opposite of a bookworm. He was obsessed with sports. And during a childhood move to a country halfway across the globe, he encountered someone who would end up changing the course of his life. From the age of five, I wanted to be a professional athlete. At the age of nine, we moved to South Africa. In South Africa, they really take sports seriously. That was a, a real treat for me. We spent five years there in a very small town, about 80 kilometers uh, south of Johannesburg, a town called Van der Bell Park. And I played numerous sports there, table tennis and tennis and soccer and cricket and rugby. And then one day, my friend's father, Desmond Sweden, took us to play squash together. And for me, it was love at first sight. As soon as I picked up that racket, hit that ball against the wall, I said, this is the sport for me. And almost immediately, I started playing a lot. And I remember asking uh, Desmond, if I want to be a professional squash player, how many hours do I have to play a day? And he said, three hours a day. And the next day I started training three hours a day. I was 11 then. It was my passion. It was my calling. It was the only thing that I cared about. The only reason I went to school was because my parents forced me to, because they said, if you don't go to school, you can't play squash. Otherwise, that is all I would do. Well, I did that essentially till my late 20s when I gave up squash. So then you moved back from South Africa to Israel, continued playing squash, uh, winning a few youth championships and then joining the army. Can you tell us a little bit of the moment that you realized that you're not going to play professional squash anymore? The person responsible for the end of my squash career is none other than Saddam Hussein. Do you want details or should I leave it at that? Okay. <laughs> so here is how Saddam Hussein ended my squash career. I played professionally before the military. And the Israeli military has a special athlete program top athletes get to continue practicing their trade. So I was on a military base in uh, Herzliya, just north of Tel Aviv, which is close to where the, the national team trained. And, you know, a few times a week, I would go out and practice. And, you know, every few months, I would be allowed to travel abroad and play tournaments. So I could essentially, maybe not improve, but sustain the level in the hope that 
when I finished the military at the age of 21, I could go back to playing professionally. Everything was going along pretty smoothly. And then Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Now, just to put some personal context there, my role in the army, I was in charge of anti-atomic, biological, and chemical warfare. The reason why they put me in charge of that, not in the whole army, but just in that army base, was because you never really need the person because hopefully, you know, it will, you'll never use it. And, and then you can have three years in the army without doing too much. And then Saddam invades Kuwait, the Israeli military goes on alert. And then all benefits of athletes disappear. Not only that, suddenly my unit within the army becomes very important because Saddam Hussein, at least the, the theory was that he has chemical, maybe even biological weapons. Not only that, when the Gulf War actually starts, my unit becomes the only operational unit in Israel because we absorb the Patriot missiles in order to shoot down those scuds. So from being the um, happy-go-lucky soldier, I became maybe literally the busiest soldier in the Israeli military overnight. So all the way till the middle of February, which is when the war in Iraq ended, I didn't play any squash, zero. And then I went back and within two weeks, I got injured. That happened just a few times, the same injury. It was all fine when I was playing, but when I stopped playing during those seven months of the war, my back muscles got a lot weaker and my vertebrae actually shifted a little bit. I saw a doctor who said, look, this is pretty bad and you have a choice either to uh, give up your professional career because you're just gonna, not going to withstand the, the pressure of it or operate on your back and then it's a crapshoot. We don't know, you know, sometimes it's very successful and, and you'll be able to go back to you know, business as usual in terms of training, but it may not work. And I decided not to go through with the operation and then I had to give up my professional career aspirations. It was up until that date, the most difficult experience of my life. That's the only thing I cared about. And suddenly I couldn't do it and I, and I really, I did not see a future. Today, I know that the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. I had no hope then. I really felt hopeless. It took a long while before I regained some hope and a much longer while before I found what has become my calling. But that took years. After realizing that you're not going to be able to pursue squash professionally, what's next? What, what did you decide to do? Yeah, so, so I really didn't know. And I must say, I, I, I deep down, I didn't want to do anything. I had uh, very, very low levels of motivation. So I applied to a number of universities, all with uh, strong squash programs, because while I couldn't play professionally anymore, I could certainly play college squash. I did get into Harvard and decided to go there. I was very happy when I got in, but I saw it as uh, my second option. In retrospect, I'm very glad. But for years after, if you said to me, you know, we've just discovered a wonder drug or a wonder procedure that, you know, you're back and go back to normal and you can play professionally again, I would take that offer in a second. Only for Tal Ben Shacha could Harvard be a second option. Okay, Tal. So you started Harvard and what did you decide to study? I went into computer science. I've always been good at math, never had to work too hard at it, had no patience for reading. In, f in fact, um, the first book that I read, I mean, real book that I read cover to cover was when I was uh, 21, just before uh, I started college. Even for high school, when we had to read books, I would always read the cliff notes. I wasn't interested. So it was natural for me to go into the sciences and studied computer science. And then found myself in my second year 
doing quite well academically. I was doing pretty well in squash. Socially, it was, it was okay. And yet I wasn't happy. And that didn't make sense to me. Because everything that I've been told and, and everything that I'd learned about, I did that. I checked the boxes. And I was in a top college. I was a top athlete. Why wasn't I happy? That led me to one very cold Boston morning to go to my academic advisor telling her that I'm switching majors. And she said, uh, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And, and she said, how come? And I said, well, because I have two questions. First question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate as well as graduate degrees. At Harvard, you taught the most popular course, a course on happiness, with, I believe, 900 students attending. Was that an immediate success or was the journey there challenging? I don't know if it was challenging, but it was certainly not immediate. The first year when I taught the class, I had eight students. Two of them dropped out, which left me with a broken ego. The following year, the class became slightly bigger. And then the third year, it actually had close to 900 students. And at that point, it became the largest course in the university. Many people ask me, so how did it become so wildly popular? It's the topic. How do I know that? Because just about every place where positive psychology or the science of happiness is taught, it becomes the biggest course. The same recently happened at Yale. The same happened at Stanford. Just about everywhere you go, you will find that course on happiness is the biggest course at the university. So people are interested in the topic. They're hungry for the topic because it's very much an applied topic. You know, it's very difficult to teach happiness just in theory. You know, you learn something and then you apply it in your life. You try it out on your roommate or a partner. You talk about it, you know, over the dinner table because it is so, so personal. And that's why the course literally mushroomed. When you look back at your career, when was the time that you were happiest? Was it the times when you worked really hard to achieve success and think about the future? Or was it the times where you kind of relaxed, was more in the present, enjoying the, the current moment? There are two schools of thought when it comes to happiness. The first school of thought says happiness is about being future-oriented. It's about achieving goals. Because when you achieve these goals, then you're really happy. The problem is that we know that um, when we um, reach a goal, yeah, we're, we're happy, but it's temporary. It's ephemeral. We have research on uh, professionals who achieved their life goal, their dream came true. And they're extremely happy for a day or a month, and then they go back to where they were before. I really believed that when I win the national championships, then I'll finally be happy. And I won it, and I was ecstatic for four hours. It took me four hours to realize, what, this is it? What do I do now? Then I fooled myself into thinking, okay, so when I get into Harvard or when I get this job, when I make this money, I wrote about this and I coined this phenomenon, the arrival fallacy, the false belief that when we arrive at a certain point, then I'll be happy. It just doesn't work that way. So the future-oriented school doesn't have it right, it seems. So then the opposing school says it's all about the present. It's all about being in the here and now. But there's a problem with that school of thought too. And the problem is that we are future-oriented beings, that what drives us are future goals. So what is the right approach? The right approach is finding a synthesis between these two models of happiness. Having goals is important, especially having meaningful goals, goals that are aligned with our values, with our passions. And then once we have that goal, to let go of it, to relinquish it, 
and to focus on the present moment. Here lies an interesting paradox. Future goals actually help us focus on the present moment. And let me share a personal example. Just over a year ago, my publisher and I had an idea for the book, and that was a book about happiness in difficult times. And the publisher, you know, said, okay, we'd like this book out on May 11th, 2021. And that was, uh, you know, almost a year before. But once I had this goal, I let it go. And I said, I know exactly what I need to do now. I need to wake up every morning and spend between three and four hours writing. I didn't wake up every morning and I said, what should I do? Should I write this morning or should I maybe watch uh, Downton Abbey or should I spend time with my kids? No, it was very clear to me. The future goal helped me in liberating the present moment. That is how you synthesize it to have those future goals and then let go of those goals and just focus on what you're doing in the here and now. In your book, The Joy of Leadership, you talk about the 10x leaders. And since a lot of our listeners are interested in leadership and are going to be in influential positions, can you introduce a little bit the 10x leaders? The phrase 10x leader came to my partner, Angus Ridgway, and myself through our experience and research. So Angus spent 21 years at McKinsey in charge of leadership development within the firm. And what we observed was that when we see leaders who display certain characteristics, it's not that they're just you know 10% better or more effective. It's not marginal, small differences. They are often able to raise the team or the organization by a factor of 10x. Now, what are these traits and characteristics that we identified? I'm a big fan of acronyms. The acronym that uh, Angus and I came with is the SHARP acronym. The S stands for strengths. The first type of strength is the answer to the question, what are you good at? Where do your talents lie? The second question when it comes to strength is what gives you strength? In other words, what energizes you? What is your passion? Now, the key with strength is finding the overlap between these two forms of strength. What are you good at and what are you passionate about? And when you find the overlap, that is your zone of great leadership. That's the S of sharp. The H is health. One of the main reasons why organizations called me up was because of burnout, breakdown, high stress levels. Now, when we look at stress, the important thing to look at is that stress in and of itself is not a problem. That in fact, potentially stress is good for us. The problem rather is the lack of recovery. What we see in great leaders is that they experience stress like everyone else does. And they're very smart and strategic about introducing recovery, whether it's you know every two hours to have a 10-minute break or whether it's exercising regularly or whether it's uh, taking a day off, even God needed a day off, or taking a vacation. JP Morgan once said, I can do the work of a year in nine months, but not in 12 Now, most of us don't have the luxury of taking three months off, but uh, a vacation here and there, a week, two weeks off is critical. So that's the H of sharp. The A is absorption. And that's essentially about being mindful, being present, being engaged. More and more managers are realizing the importance of single tasking rather than multitasking. That often makes the difference between uh, burnout or flourishing. Then the R of uh, sharp is relationships, creating healthy relationships in organizations. There are many ways. One, one, one way that I do want to mention because it's so important, creating a culture of psychological safety. Psychological safety is the sense that it's okay to make a mistake, that it's okay to say, I don't know, that it's okay to be different, that it's okay to experiment and risk. 
The research shows that this is the number one predictor of successful, effective teams. So that's the R of sharp. And the P, no big surprise here, is purpose. And we know that organizations with the purpose are much more likely to succeed and are much more likely to overcome barriers. You know, Nietzsche once said, those who have a what for can overcome any how. And that's purpose on the organizational level and of course purpose on the individual level as well that's important for leaders. Is there any difference between younger generation Z or millennials uh, than older generations when it comes to leadership? I'd like to share a study that was run by my mentor, the late uh, Warren Bennis, considered perhaps the founder of the field of leadership studies. And he did research asking the exact same question that you asked, what is the difference between the young generation and the older generation of leaders? And he interviewed great leaders who are in their late 20s, early 30s, and then great leaders who are in their 80s and 90s. Now, what was common to all of them, they were all successful. But where they were different is that for the old generation, there wasn't the issue of work-life balance. You know, they worked and the wife balanced, which is another difference. The older generation were basically men. So that was one of the differences. However, what he found, and he didn't expect this, and this ended up being the crux of his theory, was that both young and old, all with almost no exception, experienced crucibles in their lives. Crucibles are very hard, difficult experiences where their sense of self was shaken. This could be a loss of a person very near to them. This could be a loss of identity. Think Steve Jobs fired from Apple. But an experience that really rocked their world to the core. All of them experienced. Now, one could say, well, we all have crucibles in our lives. But the difference with these leaders is that they all used that crucible as a learning experience, as a lever for growth. Falling down and learning to get up and, and learning to manage hardships and difficulties and, and challenges, this is part of growing up and an important part of becoming a leader. And we need to remember that. So now I'm going to ask you a series of questions that I ask each of our guests. What is one piece of advice that you would like to give the younger Tal? The piece of advice would be that too shall pass. Meaning when I go through difficult experiences, they are temporary, just like pleasurable experiences are temporary. And learning to accept and embrace that, that's an important part of happiness. What is the one thing that people get absolutely wrong about you? It must be the fact that people think that I'm always happy. I see it with my students, even after I talk about the permission to be human, even after I talk about the fact that I'm not a psychopath and I'm alive, they still somewhere deep down believe that, oh, an expert on happiness must be happy all the time. And lastly, what are you most optimistic about? The human spirit. Throughout history, you know, the, the human spirit prevailed. You know, there have been some uh, horrific things that happened in the world and are happening as we speak. And yet, the good seems to ultimately prevail. Not for everyone, not all the time, but ultimately for humanity. Talbashaha, thanks for being on our show. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having the show and thank you for having me on the show. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening and Litraot. See you next time.